Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging field of data science. We bring the best minds in data, software engineering, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Now here are your hosts, Frank Lavinia and Andy Leonard. Hello and welcome back to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging fields of machine learning, data science and artificial intelligence. If you like to think of data as the new oil, then you can think of us as, well, car talk. And with me on this epic journey down the information superhighway, as always, is Andy Leonard. How you doing, Andy? I'm doing well, Frank. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm back from vacation, and uh, I'll have to say we're recording this on September 4th, 2018. And this is the first day of school. It's the first day of the labor after Labor Day. Um, in the U.S., and I tell you, today's a brutal day, man. It's not only first day of school, first day back from vacation. It's it's uh, it's kind of brutal, and um, you know, this will probably go out in a week or two, so the dust will have settled. But apparently, there was a lightning strike at a major data center somewhere. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> as bad as it is for me, for some folks, it's uh, it's even worse. I tell you, it was um, it was tough. I was uh, I was chatting with the Bemel folks, mm-hmm. and and they rely on that for some functionality, and it was just not there. Right. Um, I was I, I was kind of uh, it was kind of interesting. You know, we talk about this all the time, you and I do, because we're we're geeks and engineers. But you know, it's one of those things that makes you look and think. Those people doing the chaos monkey tests, they're on to something. Right. Throw the switch. Pull the plug out of the wall. Right. Do we stay in business? Do we stay up? And I cannot even begin to imagine what that's like at that scale. I, I just can't. I am not criticizing. I promise you. I'm sympathizing. And I'm just going to be straight up. When I heard about it, I started praying for those folks. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's hard. I've been there, you know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see, you know, it, this is still an ongoing process, but I think what's interesting yeah. is that if this happened to a private organization's data center, I mean, this would be lights out for oh, yeah. for, for days or weeks. Uh, yeah. The fact that, you know, this is happening uh, at a company that the scale, I think, you know, the outage is probably going to be measured in hours. Um, yeah, fact- and, you know, the thing, too, I mean, we know about the lightning. We know about that it was heat. Mm-hmm. that he'd actually took it into a what appears to have been a controlled shutdown, which is nice. That right. part worked. Um, but this is the classic example, right? This is like the, you know, the, it's a combination of things happening. It wasn't just that, you know, lightning hit it and all of that. If lightning had hit it six months from now, you know, in the middle of you know, early March or late February, right. heat wouldn't be that big of a problem, right? You right. open some doors. And you're good, but it's we've been having a hundred, you know, hundred degree heat indexes here for the past couple weeks. And I wouldn't um, know because I was way up in the mountains of North Carolina. Which <laughs> when I when I got home, I was like, oh my god. For Why do us I live poor, this? us poor unfortunate souls that were back closer to sea level, unlike you Lavinias, <laughs> traipsing around the mountains of North Carolina. Which is a beautiful area, man. It's uh, it is. You're the, in a great uh, spot. My son, my older son, uh, got into gem mining, 
Oh, um, nice. They have out there. He's really been into geology lately, and um, okay. you know, and I think that's cool because it's a science field. And um, you know, uh, on his little uh, since today was the first day back of school, on his little placard that says, you know, today is my, you know, I'm this old and and whatever, and I want to be when I grow up. Uh, he, um, he and I, I think I sent you this picture. So he he, he and I have been kind of watching the expanse somewhat together. Although there's some parts of the show that I don't want him to see, but um, <laughs> he. Um, he um, he was he put asteroid miner, which I thought was like you know I mean that sounds cool. impossible but I mean you know, um, you know and given his age and kind of where that technology is going in the privatization space it's not entirely out of the question so no not at all and, and uh, he looked he looked mighty handsome ready to go to school this morning, thank you so thank you that. he must get that from mom. <laughs> <laughs> You got to take some credit, Frank. You got to. I got to take some credit. Yeah. Some credit for that. That's right. Nature and nurture. Well, so speaking, speaking of, of some handsome. I'm oh, sorry. I was going to say the same thing. We were speaking on the same page, you guys. <laughs> handsome fellows. Uh, we, uh, you have somebody on uh, our guest this week is somebody that uh, we saw on on video on Facebook Live. Yep. Uh, when you did a data point from uh, the Atlanta Data Fest. Yep. This is the. Stuart Ainsworth, and uh, Stu's a friend, I, I've, and you could tell by watching that video, there was a lot of joking, a little more than normal. Um, Stu is a service reliability engineer, at least that's what it says on LinkedIn here, so I'm reading yeah. it, so you correct me if I'm wrong, but um, pretty interesting that that's the topic. Um, we'll get into that a little bit more. I know Stu from the SQL Server community. He is a guru of databases. Um, he's he's one of those guys though that's cross discipline. Uh, he's got pr good project management skills. He's got um, you know just good. Um, I'm trying to think of the right term, but I, I'd, I'd say enterprise architect. But I don't know how much software you've done, Stu. But that you certainly can hold your own. I know from experience, you can hold your own on the data side of enterprise architecture. So with with that. And uh, I'll mention this too. He's Stu is big on DevOps, and DevOps is hard in the data arena. Maybe we'll get to talk about that a little bit more too. Welcome to the show, Stu. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I, I, I'm super excited about this. I've, um, you know, y'all have been doing this long enough, and I've gone back and listened to a couple of the podcasts, and 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 you have all of these amazing people on, and then I'm sitting here thinking, I don't know what I'm going to say that's going to be really even all that interesting. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I'm, thank you so much for having me. I mean, I'm, I'm like I'm super stoked just to uh, chat with you all for a little bit and talk about things. So uh, it is funny that the the whole Azure thing is going down because uh, you know, and I probably should have used a different way of phrasing that. But you know, this, <laughs> that you know that that's the topic of the day because really, uh, you know, that is where my career has led me these days. You know, we talked about my title as a service reliability engineer and uh, really that's where I'm at. And, you know, Andy, I haven't done a lot of software development, but, you know, I've hung out with those guys for years, particularly yeah. on the database side, because I was the guy that was always saying, you know, this is the way that we should really architect the tables and, and talk about it. You know, and, and Andy, you and I have known each other for years. I can still remember pretty fondly a conversation. I think it was at SQL Saturday, uh, uh, Columbus, or no, yeah, maybe SQL Saturday Columbus. Uh, Brian Kelly was there. We were having a conversation a long time ago, back when 
gosh, DTS became SSIS, right? And I was struggling trying to get my head wrapped around it. And, uh, it, it was just a great conversation. And I think I walked away thinking, nope, it's not going to do what I want. Where I'm at these days with the whole service reliability engineering stuff is really taking all of that experiment, experience and uh, conversations that we've had about software development, database development over the last years and uh, really focusing on, okay, if we're now in a cloud model, where uh, we're building applications on top of a platform, on top of an infrastructure, the question really becomes focused on if we look at those applications, the service that we deliver to customers, how do we monitor that? How do we measure it? How do we talk about it being up and reliable and doing what it's supposed to be doing? And that's really where I'm at these days is trying to get a team to say that, you know, we don't have to worry about the whole stack anymore, but we have to be able to, have good conversations about the, the, the components below the stack and understand what's going on, mm-hmm. but we also need to be really focused on measuring and, and, and talking about is something doing what it's supposed to be doing. And, and that's an interesting conversation to have because there's the technology and then there's the expectation. Uh, and those two don't always align and, and neither one of, and either one of them could be the one that's out of whack at any given time, right? People could be expecting something different than what the solution was designed to be doing. Right. Uh, and their expectations may need adjustment or uh, the solution may need to be adjusted. And right. it's really getting at the heart of that question and trying to figure it out. And that's, that's, that's what my team is responsible for right now. Uh, okay. And, you know, so, uh, it is a little different than, say, the, the most of the database people and most of the AI and the machine language people that you've got coming on. But uh, uh, there is some crossover, some some overlap. Yeah. Well, I think real, reliability is one of those things that um, we've gotten so used to things just working. Right. Uh, yeah. Particularly with the cloud. And, you know, I think it was in sometime in July, uh, Prime Day, Amazon went uh, face up. Or face right. down. I don't know. I don't know. I know what the bad word version of that phrase is. I'm not going to use it. But, but I mean, it went. It crashed hard. And right. you know, I mean, we're so reliant on on this technology. And you know, one example uh, from the vacation was cell phone service in the mountains is not that good because mountains are in the way, and you have to put up twice as many towers, and the population doesn't support it. So my kids, who are used to you know having their iPads and uh, you know, we can we can pick on them, but when we realized how dependent we were on Waze for directions, mm. we were like, "Oh crap!" Like, oh. So when my wife and I went to Canada for the first time together, right? Um, we did not realize until we were headed to the border that Canada was another country. <laughs> 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 you know, we had gotten so used to the fact that you know everything we had GPS on our phones, we had. Right, uh, right email, uh, you know, phone calls, we could talk to the family, and all of that was going away within a mile of where we were. <laughs> and so we were dialing people quickly, telling them, hey, we're going to be off the grid for the next couple of days. And then we wandered around Vancouver for a couple of days, um, going from hotspot to hotspot so we could get access to Wi-Fi to kind of figure these things out. But uh, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, that whole idea of having this expectation of this is the way things are going to work and then suddenly you're you're in a situation where that bubble gets burst and how do you respond to it i mean that's that's a really interesting area 
four for me right now. So right, uh, and it's it's a double doubly. I think the ten dollar word is uh, serendipitous, because we had a severe problem. Usually, we record these shows with um, ZenCaster, uh, and it did not like something about uh, Stu's uh, microphone. So this is actually we're actually recording on a backup system that we kind of. But um, I guess part of the part of it is you, you know. Um, and, and you hear this a lot in disaster preparedness um, spaces where they talk about the thing. They have an acronym for it, but it's basically the thing that you didn't see coming is the thing that hits you. Uh, like Andy said, if this lightning strike had taken out the cooling system in the middle of December, probably wouldn't have been a big deal. Uh, but the fact that this happened during kind of uh, the heat, uh, heat wave um, is a big deal. It's always that, that, that chaos monkey, you know, or the thing that you didn't see coming. Um, is the thing that that really bites you hard, and I guess how important is it in your role that you know thinking on your feet? Like I we we did not I say this was our backup plan, but we actually didn't have a backup plan until I realized, oh shoot, uh, <laughs> this isn't working. Uh, what else do I have to record? Right. It you know I think that that has been that is part of every operations facility that I know. Of. We always talk about fighting fires, right? And People get really, really good at fighting fires. And one, you know, so I think that that whole responsiveness, that whole mentality of I've got to move in and do something, that has been part of the IT culture for, for 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, it's just something that you do, you know. Uh, I can't think of a single engineer that I know of that, you know, if you were to ask them, oh, how cool is MacGyver or how cool is the A-Team? You know, as kids, that was our icons, right, that we loved that whole idea of being able to slap something together and come out with something at the end. Uh, I love it when a plan comes together, right? And, uh, and, and the thing is, is that the whole idea of reliability is really keeping that instinct in check a little bit and figuring out, you know, how do I get away from fighting fires after fire after fire after fire? Because honestly – the burnout that is associated with constant firefighting, constantly patching systems, constantly doing something, it's tremendous on a team, and it just it wears you down. And so you have to really begin to step, say, you know, I'm going to dedicate some time to really eliminating that whole uh, need to be in a firefighting mode all the time. And it, it, it's, it's antithetical to the way that I think that a lot of us are wired because we're yeah. so – engineered and we we built ourselves around this whole hero mentality right i'm going to swoop in and save the day and i've done it again and then you know fly off back to our, our cubbies and wait again for the next alarm bell to go off and uh and really getting to the point where you can simply say you know i i'm not going to fight that fire because i'm going to focus on figuring out why it's happening how it's happening why does it keep happening, and what can I do to, to avoid this in, in the future? So the whole idea of these chaos monkeys and these, these systems where you do these sort of controlled burns, uh, mm-hmm. and you kind of move in and, and you quite literally break stuff to see what happens when you break it, uh, yeah. that's, a, that's a very powerful model of acting and working. And again, it's, it's that changing that mindset of, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting away from just being able to think on my feet, Right. Uh, but really saying I need to actually spend some time thinking about how stuff's going to break and how it's going to how it's going to fall apart, um, so that I can uh, uh, make it more secure, more reliable in the long run. So, well, it's interesting that you bring that up and that you're talking about reliability. It's also interesting that we're talking about it today. The um, mutual friend of ours, Brent Ozar, has he posts book uh, reviews from time to time, and he 
A couple months ago, I went through the site reliability book that I believe was written based on Google itself. And then there was a follow-up book that he was talking about that I picked up. I actually picked up both of them, but I read through the one on database reliability. And reliability engineering is just becoming mission critical. Right. And, I mean, we saw it today, you know. Right. And, and I think the reason that we're not staring – as Frank pointed out, that we're not staring a week of downtime in the face that we can measure it in really in minutes uh, is is because somebody somebody did their job. You know, probably a lot of somebody's did. And when you have a collision like this with two different things coming at you out of nowhere, you know, it's that's I, I don't know how you predict that. I mean, I'd love to sit here and tell you, you know, what do you do? But unless you've got something like the Star Trek shields where you could just isolate from everything, right? Cosmic radiation, right? Uh, alien attack. Yeah, you know, and, and the thing is, is that, you know, as we're moving more and more toward cloud models, where we're yeah. starting to, to, to really, even when we talk about private clouds, you know, we, we talked a little, you, you mentioned early on about, you know, how would this handle affect a, a private company, and they'd have to do this for a response. Well, you got to think that even inside of a private company, oh, yeah. you don't really have these business unit silos anymore. People are beginning to consolidate data centers again. We're, we're, we're back in that, that centralized model. Right. And, and now it's, you know, if you're doing a private cloud or a public cloud, whole concept of being able to understand and rely on things doing what they're supposed to do and figuring out how do I monitor and measure it so that when stuff starts to get out of alignment, out of a whack, I can I can prepare for it. Plus the fact that I've also got to prepare for the completely unpredicted and right. and, and have you know different routes for for information and data flow. It's a very daunting task, and it's in it's it's a different way of looking at it than we've traditionally done. Where you know if you've had uh, you know, database engineers, we, we always talked about, you know, we have backups. We can talk about different replication models. We can talk about different ways of uh, shipping data from one side of the, 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 the world to the other, from a different server to another. And sure. you do all of this planning and things like that. But going back to a model of, of saying, I'm going to measure what my service level expectation is, and I'm going to set a number and say, this is the amount of uptime that I can guarantee Right. You know, right. how do I stay compliant within that guarantee? And if you well, need I, a more critical model, how do you begin to build for that and architect for that? And I think really it goes back to, so it's it's very cyclical, what you just described. So the, the very first step, I think for most organizations out there, not all, but most, is that you first need to calculate what you can guarantee. Right. And then you need to realize that that is not, it, it, it's not a static number. It, right. you know, it, it's not a scalar. You need to put along with that like a confidence in how, you know, how confident you are in that. Because if you say you're at, at let's just say 1.9, you know, 99.9. Right. Let's just throw that out there. And and, and you want to stay up at, at that, you know, maybe that's three nines. Okay. So you want to stay there. You've got to count. Yeah, it's part of statistics, right, Frank, counting? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you want to stay there, but you, you figure out the math on that, but you you may only be 50% confident, you know, in that number. And I tell people all the time, when I, they ask me for estimates, you know, how long is it going to take to do this job? I'll give them 
uh, you know, a, uh, an estimate and then how confident I am in that estimate. And the reason I do that, and then I'll tell them, if I say 50%, I'm guessing. Right. That means 50-50. Right. If I tell you 80, and usually those are my answers, <laughs> it's usually 50 or 80. That's about as sure as I can get, given, you know, lightning may strike, and I may have everything lined up. I may have everything you just described in place for monitoring this. But, you know, what did this look like from an – I'm kind of putting that into the picture here, visualizing what that looked like from an operations center. It's like all of a sudden the temperature starts climbing. That's right. what it looked like. Like they don't – well, maybe they do have cameras. Maybe they saw the lightning hit. Who knows? But the temperature started climbing. And then it reached that threshold where the control shutdown started kicking in. And you're watching the train come off the track. Right. You know, for the southeast U.S. Right. Uh, you know, I'm, again, I'm, I'm floored that we're back up and they're, you know, they're back up and they're running. I think they did a, a fantastic job. But, you know, the, I think it's definitely a continuous improvement. Uh, type of thing where right. you're going to see that as these things happen, there'll be lessons learned, there'll be systems put in place. It won't just be fix the problem that happened, you know, repair the barn door uh, after the horses come back home. It's going to be probably re-architecture, redesigning the barn so that, I don't know, maybe there is no door. Maybe it's a trap door and there's tunnels out of the barn from here on out. You know, I mean, my analogies were really going off the rails. Or you put a boat around the barn. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, or, and tank traps. But I mean, I think this yeah. is this is an interesting thing because I think disaster. I mean, is it fair to call this part of disaster disaster recovery as a as a component of this? I yeah, and it, you know, I disaster recovery planning is part of my duty, right? You know, and it um, it is one of those things where you have to kind of go out and coordinate with other teams. But it is really beginning to look at the whole deliverable and what's interesting is is that because i have a very small team and because this concept is new for jack henry my employer um we we limited the scope of what we're going to look at i i only deal with our applications you know and, right. and i rely really heavily on our cloud uh services team uh we run off on a private cloud they handle my platform and infrastructure and it's those gray areas that sometimes you know you know, we talk about database backups and things like that, and, and, you know, and I have guys that are former database administrators that are very invested in knowing that these things are working, and uh, it's the constant conversation with them. And, 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 and a lot of that stuff, I, you know, and I'm probably going to get a lot of flack from my DBAs. You can cover your ears now, y'all. Uh, but <laughs> I really could care less about, about backups at this point, not because it's not important, but because I want somebody else to do it. I know that I'm responsible for covering the application, I know that I'm responsible for having a conversation. I don't have to do it myself, right? Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, disaster recovery, avoidance, disaster recovery plan is all part of that. And uh, uh, it is a, you know, again, it, for me, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, aspect because I, I didn't do this as, an, as a database administrator before. I mean, I was part of the, 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 I was part of the planning for the data. But looking at you know the entire end-to-end -end integration chain of how data flows through our system, it's it's a much more complex picture than you know I, I ever thought of when I was just focusing on just my little my little database. I say little, we we, we manage about 23 to 30 terabytes of data right now, so it, it's not small. You know, 
10 years ago, that was like ginormous. <laughs> and now I'm just seeing the two of you go, yeah, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's still an impressive number, at least for a few yeah. more years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. One of the interesting things is um, is that um, a, a six terabyte database 10 years ago would have been an engineering accomplishment. Now that's, right. I can, as soon as you walk into Costco, at least my Costco, right on the right, when you walk in, they have, they sell eight terabyte desktop uh, hard drives. Right. So, um, but but uh, not getting too far off topic. But how important is like sea level um, acknowledgement of of reliability and disaster? I mean, because I mean, this stuff isn't cheap, you know. And 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 uh, you know, to get to that, it's not a linear scale. I mean, to get from you know four nines to six nines is not. I mean, I don't know what the factor is, but it's definitely not linear. We, you know, I think it, I think they definitely say it's like exponential to a power of ten is some yeah. of the estimates that that Google puts out there, right? That it's going to cost cool. you ten times as much to go an additional, you know, point on the on the scale to get there. And I, I think that really goes back to you have to define what the service level objective is, and you have to be accurate, and you have to to give that expectation. You know, Google used to used to get around that by saying everything was in beta, right? You know, every every product out of Google was in beta for years, and the and the reason they labeled that is because customers understood that beta meant it could blow up at any second, and that was okay because it was beta. You didn't really have any sort of liability associated with it. I think they've deviated away from that in the last few years. I don't think you see that title going around quite as much. But um, you know, in terms of the C level buy in, it the sad thing is is that I think that it has to bite them in the pocketbook before they really begin to move in. And, you know, that may be changing, but uh, I know that even within Jack Henry, we had an issue a few years ago where we had a data center, I think it was Superstorm Sandy, we had a data center go down. And uh, it was bad. I mean, it was, uh, we were scrambling to recover, we were scrambling to get things back up in place. It was one of these uh, uh, cataclysmic moments that today, you know, Microsoft is, bouncing back with and from within an hour I mean it took us a few weeks to get everything back and get the dust settled and so after that you know JHA really made it part of their culture to say that we're going to bake in reliability we're going to bake in redundancy it's it's when they kicked off their own private cloud it's when they begin to look at how they consolidate resources they begin to really put a lot of stock in BRPs and BIAs we uh, we currently go through a disaster, a full-fledged disaster recovery exercise um, every six months wow. in, in my organization. I go through, I probably sit on four to six audits a year uh, of where we're having people come in and ask, and, and a lot of the questions are around these sorts of preparedness issues and, 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 and what are you going to do in the event of, of these sorts of things. And so it is really part of the mentality now that we do this. Now, has that does that necessarily translate into uh, an additional point on that scale? Do we are we trying to strive for a 99.999 percent deliverable? In some areas, I would say yes, but I think what they've done is gone back and really looked at the service offerings and looked at uh, where it makes sense to, to to invest heavily like that and where it doesn't make so much sense. Like you know, there are some there are some cases where if things you can have little outages here and there, and it doesn't impact the overall customer experience. You can right. you can have maintenance windows. You don't have to have this this 
this rock solid, but you want to be as solid as is needed. Sure. Um, and really laying out that expectation has become part of the the conversation that we have. And of course, you want to be able to recover in the event of a of, a, of an outage. But uh, but the whole point is avoiding outages as much as you can by by kind of baking in those sorts of uh, redundancies. So. I think it's interesting that uh, we keep dancing around this topic. One of Andy's favorite authors wrote the book Black Swan. Uh, uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb, or Taleb Nassim, I'm yeah. butchering his last name. And particularly yeah. since one of our one of our stretch goals is to get him on the show because he's a very, very, very thought-provoking kind of guy. And even though he's not directly related to data, I would say that um, he does deal in the world of risk. And right. Uh, th that sounds like it's very relevant to what you know uh, this type of work, and um, you know you never really can predict the future. You can kind of everything you can possibly imagine, you can kind of um, prepare for. But you know, finding a black swan is not something that um, is something you could expect. Right. Yeah. By definition, black swans have never happened before. Right. That's part of the definition. It's a thing that's, that's never happened before, that you cannot look back and see uh, this is coming because it happened once before, and this is the path that led up to that happening. I I, I'm, I'm making a note of that so I can go back and read that one. I haven't. I actually haven't read that. I've heard good things about it, but I've never. I, I don't know what it's about, or you know, I've just heard it passing in yeah. conversations. You'll never look at risk the same way again. You'll you'll always be like. You know, that, I wouldn't say it would, if you, it, I wouldn't say it would make you paranoid, but it'll make you scratch your chin. And I, I think, think uh, whatever data you believe in, and 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 how boring a boring day can be, because <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting, interesting read. Um, I don't know if there's an audio book for that, but I definitely, I have a credit. There that, is. Uh, there is. There is, and um, he's written, uh, I think, five now. Yeah, and they really go together. Um, the latest one is called "Skin in the Game." It came out earlier this year. Um, r really thought-provoking. I listened to it. I didn't read it, and um, yeah, just I, I like the way the guy thinks. He irritates people, um, which you know, in in the engineering field, that's a credential if you yeah. irritate people. <laughs> You find the biggest dog in the room and you kick it. That's the, what I've always heard. <laughs> uh, there you go. Especially well, think, if it's asleep. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's interesting is um, one of the things that uh, was an interesting factoid was you think back to 9-11 and um, how quickly the stock exchange went back online, right? That was a function of Y2K preparation. Right. In very large degree, uh, so I, I don't. I mean, I think that was interesting. So, so the the expectation that the black swan, or so to speak, or what we thought was going to come and destroy a Western civilization, was Y2K. Um, but what actually ended up being a real problem was was a terrorist attack, and right. because of all the money that was spent, I actually had a long debate at some family Thanksgiving dinner about all the money that was wasted on on Y2K <laughs> preparation. This was after 9/11. Right. And I was like, you realize the economy didn't crash right after, I mean, there was a recession and there was uh, issues, but I mean, the, the, it didn't come crashing down um, right. after that, after, because a lot of data centers were in that area. 
because that's, that's right. I happen to work there. There's a whole story behind that. <laughs> but um, but I worked there. Com. Right, franksworld.com yeah. slash WTC. Uh, I, mean, I live down there. I work down there. I mean, like, uh, but but the fact that things kind of came back as quickly as they did was a testament to the preparation that was done into Y2K. Right. And, and you know, and I think that, that that's, you know, that is one of the things that, that you know, about technology is, is that as we're continuing down this path and, and we're learning and we're building and we're going into these whole distributed models, uh, the cloud, right? You know, I was, I was thinking about this in kind of preparation for, for the show is, is that, you know, when when the cloud kind of first took off, right? It it was a it was a derivative of of the internet, and the reason why we had the internet is because we wanted to have all of these redundant communication systems, so that the military could could talk, and then and colleges kind of picked up on it, and and so it's this this whole chain of of of, of progress that we're seeing, and now we're into the cloud era, and. I have the T-shirt, right? About that, the, that there's no such thing as a cloud. It's just another person's computer, you know. And we've all heard those jokes, but in reality, if you think about the way that what the, this this new shared hosting uh, metaphor and model is doing for us, uh, and the fact that it is giving us such scalability, such redundancy, such reliability baked into it. You know, we've never had that before, right? right. You know, yeah. even even when we were talking about mainframes, and we we had all of it. You know, and people people will often say, "Oh, cloud is just a data center; it's just another mainframe somewhere," right? We're going back to the mainframe model, and the difference is is that we can quite literally have entire complex applications, entire data processing and pumping, uh, moving terabytes, even up to petabytes, maybe even I think they were saying zettabytes of data. You can have that lifted and shifted geographically throughout the country in a matter of minutes. I mean, that's, right. that's incredible if you think about that. It is, yeah. And having that potential and having that ability to to do that in the event of a disaster, in the event of an outage, uh, and be able to restore functioning and, and you know, that is that is you know it's just crazy how much of a of, of a safeguard and an investment and a way to to keep things up and going. And, and, you know, they used to talk about that the Internet, oh, was designed to, to withstand major attacks, and then, you know, as it grew, it, it got more and more fragile. But I, I think now we're beginning to, to, to see those that culture of risk and reliability come back into the design of these things. Oh, absolutely. Talk about, you know, how do, we, how do we make sure that we can flip from one data center to another um, in a very quick and efficient way, uh, right. in a very cost-effective way. So, I, I mean, I, I, I just see that, you know, starting to see that there's that, that pathway. And it's a meandering pathway. I mean, we've had some, some, some interesting experiments along the way that didn't work so well and some things that, are, that we're always learning from and always going forward. But uh, it definitely is that idea that if we're going to continue in it to invest in these different models, uh, what's the payoff, right? And how do we begin to do it? And I, you know, right now I think we're in this this stage where enterprises are looking at their legacy apps and trying to figure out, you know, how do they lift them into the public cloud or or, or how do they lift them into the private cloud? And for me, it's a cultural model as much as anything else, right? You got to go oh, back totally. to design, right? And and yeah. start figuring out how do you design to implement a cloud first. Right. rather than just say, hey, I'm just going to pick everything up and just move it to somebody else's data center. So we had That's a conversation, you know, like this on the uh, – when we did the data points to 
But to kind of abstract that out, to kind of have a meta conversation about it, um, when you get right down to it, you know, our job as engineers is really to answer questions, solve problems, that sort of stuff. And we're good at that. Um, but what's, you know, what's underpinning this and what's really changing is that the questions are totally different now. Right. I mean, you know, so the hard part at this point in the game is really figuring out what's the question. We're good at answering the question, but what is the question? Right. You know, what's the problem we're trying to solve? And they're so new and so different. There are things we've never thought of before or combinations of things that we just haven't had to consider. And, you know, we, we had the, the chat about, you know, the value uh, of the cloud and, and shifting the paradigm now that you can move the slider and go from essentially one CPU to a thousand, you know, one server to a thousand, just moving the slider and hitting the button and you wait for the little spinny thing to go for 60 seconds and bam, now you're running at planet scale, right. you know, versus under the desk. And, you know, when we chatted about this in the, you know, in the context of DTUs, which are granted a made up unit, but they're becoming very important that you understand what this is. And as we said in that conversation, it goes from being able to pump gigabytes of data around to being able to pump zettabytes. Right. And, and, and maybe, maybe because of the way you configure the sliders is it's going to cost you some amount of money. Maybe it's going to cost you, say, $1,000 to perform this process. But you can run that on the four CPU scale, and it, ru it runs in 30 hours. Or, and you could pay $1,000. Or you can pay $1,000 for the 64-way box with half a terabyte of RAM, and you pay $1,000 for three minutes. Now, if you think about that, if you do the traditional math on that, you know, the dollars per minute math, you're going to look at that and go, well, this is a much better deal. Right. But if you can get to the market 29 hours and 57 minutes ahead of the next company. Yeah. You well, one, of our, one of our what? first guests um, had basically said a, he couldn't say who it was, but it was the world's largest online retailer. Uh, <laughs> changes their prices on certain products, millions of products, millions of times a day. Right. And and I, I don't think they do that because they like randomness. Um, I think they do it because they're trying to find that edge. Uh, and that's exactly what Andy said. If you come to market 29, uh, I mean, you know, 23 and a half hours before your competition does, in a lot of industries, that's that's make or break. Right. Well, you know, and the thing is, is that that's a whole new way of thinking. And at times, I question. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm getting some gray hairs in my beard these days and, and getting a lot less hair on my head. Um, but the, the thing is, and I, I question at times, if, if, you know, I've built a career on MacGyverisms, on patching stuff together and making it work, and I wonder at times if I'm able to keep up pace with that. And, uh, and that kind of ties back into the whole idea, my whole love for culture, right, is, is that I'm starting to realize that, I need to be able to pass on the experiences that I've had and not sound like the old gray-haired guy going, get off my lawn kind of stuff, or this is the way we used to do it. We walked up the hill, we, we ran our data centers in the snow, and we liked it, you know. <laughs> but, uh, 
you know, but looking at to that next generation and how do we begin to build up that whole next generation of data scientists and AI and engineers in general and say, yeah. you know, how do we how do we do business in this new computational platform, right? I mean, and um, and it's going to mean that you know we've got to let go of some of our some of our old biases against the way that we used to do things and look at the world, and, and, and it also means that we've got to be able to pass on that knowledge and say, look. You know, y'all don't have to do things the way that we did, but you got to understand this is how we got here. And and because we got here in this way and it cost us this much money to do this, how do we begin to really build those folks up and, and start to build that uh, uh, that new mindset, that new thinking, and, and, and stop doing things like we used to do? Because, right. you know, I, I work with, you know, I've mentored a couple of new people out of college, and I'll tell you that, um, you know, they're still working with relational databases the same way I was 20 years ago when I got into into this, right? And wow. they're still struggling with a lot of the same sort of mentality. And you guys know, relational databases are just one component of a much, much bigger data footprint. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And we've got to figure out ways to get more people excited about these new new data because, it, you know, technology and people kind of go in spurts, right? You know, people get ideas and the technology lags behind. And then all of a sudden we get these leapfrogs in technology where we've got this capability, this 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 newfound resource, but we don't have enough people that know how to use it to really take advantage of it. So now we have to kind of lift them up and propel them so that the, the, the technology is lagging behind again. Um, yeah. And that's just the way we progress. But, you know, some people find that very threatening, and, and some of those who feel that way feel that way with good reason. Right. And sometimes I, these I, folks – totally Sorry. Uh, sometimes these folks are in the corner office, and that's really right. – Right. And, and, you know, it is – you know, I think that, that people – you know, I – Particularly, you know, I work in a financial service industry. It's a very conservative industry, and uh, um, I, I, I love my company. Jack Henry is a great company, and I think they're they're relatively forward thinking for a financial services industry. But I will tell you that in, in the financial service industry, there is still a lot of emphasis on um, on looking at technology. You know, how do we how do we expenses appropriately how do we make the right decision with the least amount of risk and for them risk often involves capital right they don't you know right. you, you want to invest the right amount of money at the right time you don't want to invest any more you don't want to you don't want to take a lot of risk in the experimentation um, and and you're absolutely right that, that it's usually the people that are a couple of layers removed from some of the really innovative stuff that's going on that control the finances and it it, it, it's part of that conversation. You've got to get them on the same page as you as you're saying, look, you know, I think if we can take this idea and run with it, right, and we can get this kind of a return on it, it always goes back to the data. It always goes back to the data. You sure. have to have data to back up any idea, any business proposition that you're proposing. And, and I think that is one of the benefits of being in a post-9-11, post you know, the, the, is that people are much more responsive to looking at actual numbers and actual information to make these strategic decisions rather than just getting a feel for the market. It, it becomes right. another variable in, in what they're doing. So. Well, not even post 9 11, post Katrina, post Sandy, post. I right. mean, all these oh, yeah. things that were just disaster movies are, they, I don't say all of them, but I mean, a lot of them happened. Right, uh, right. You know, and I think it's, it, I think just like, 
just like the Titanic a hundred years ago or more than a hundred years ago now, really shook up the notion that risk can be completely removed by technology. That right. that that had a big psychological impact in a lot of engineering schools and and stuff. Ever since, I think you know the the, the triple threat of you know of nine eleven, Sandy, um, you know, and Katrina, um, and and maybe even the financial crisis too. I mean, right. financial industry has become a lot more uh, gun shy since then. Um, since yeah. I worked in the financial industry, but. Um, I don't know. I think it's an interesting thing. But I do know that we all have to be respectful of your time because you have a hard stop. I have a hard stop. Uh, so let's get down to the nitty-gritty and the lightning round of questions. Yeah. All right. Sound good? Yes. <laughs> all right. Yes. So um, did you find your way into data? Uh, how did you find your way into the data world? Did, did data find you? Did the data life, you know, did the thug life find you or, or you know, did you find the thug life? So did you find the data life or did data life find you? Somebody should get so, that on a T-shirt, Andy. We need that. <laughs> so data for me, data life, it, it's it's a bit like an old girlfriend that you had in high school that you forgot about for years, and then you you, you fell in love the second time around, right? I mean, um, it, when I was in high school, I had so my third job. Let me tell you about my first two jobs. The first job I had ever working, I was a, a page in a library. You know, one of those guys that would go pull the books out of the bin, and you'd go put them up and I got fired from that like a month later because I'd pulled the books out and then at a half hour to go I'd be sitting in the back reading with a stack of books around. <laughs> That's <laughs> so funny. That didn't work out. So the second job I had was mowing lawns at the local summer camp and the there was a great patch by the swimming pool that I mowed really well when the teenage girls came out. <laughs> Nothing else got mowed, but that patch was done, man. And so uh, <laughs> second job. Um, so the third job I had was actually a work for a friend of the family. He was a um, uh, he was a in the forestry business, and when he would have his crews go out and count trees, and they'd bring back these punch cards, um, and you take these punch cards and you had to enter them into the computer. So I sat there for for a couple of years, going in, you know, five or six days a week for a couple hours a day. And just keying in numbers. I, I got to know the keypad really, really well, just going around and around in circle translating these numbers. And so uh, that lasted through high school. And then I went off to college and, and majored in liberal arts, uh, graduate school, uh, got, got married, had a family, uh, and wound up working in public health and really ran into kind of a dead end. Um, and uh, and what happened was is that I just said, I'm done with this. And, and all along while I've been working at that, that public health job, I was doing stats and, and uh, some, some basic statistical analysis, social science sort of stuff, and I had ended up managing an access database, right? And so, uh, you know, I, I loved it. And what happened was is that when I decided to make a career change, I went and bought a couple of books on SQL, and I went and got a job as an access reporter, and, you know, writing reports out of Access. That's literally what they thought I was doing. But in reality, I was managing the SQL server behind the Access. Access was just the GUI they were using and uh, ended up just that became my career. I mean, and, you know, went from that and, and moved forward. So really there was a lull, you know, I can I can honestly say that my data career began when I was about 16. Um, and, and I took a hiatus from when I was about 18 till I was about 27. <laughs> And then I went back and, and kind of picked it back up again. So, Interesting. Um, Very cool. 
Well, I wanted to ask, because I think you've already covered a lot about the favorite part of your current gig. I wanted to jump to a complete this sentence. Uh, when I'm not working, I enjoy what? Road trips. You know, my parents, when I was a kid, that was the thing that we used to do. We didn't we didn't always have a lot of money, but uh, we we went everywhere in a car. And um, uh, I I do that religiously now. I mean, it's uh, uh, you know Brian Moran. I think uh, he, he's been on, he's been on a couple of data points and stuff like that. He's a good friend of ours, and uh, you know, and I think that. Uh, he and I have a running joke about how much vacation I take. I mean, I've been with Jack Henry for 16 years, so I have a long backup. I work for, backup log of, 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 of days off. I, you know, I work from home, so uh, when my wife is on summer break and, and the kids are on summer break, then you know we'll just load up and go, and, I, and I'll end up either working from the beach or, or, or something like that. So yeah, definitely getting out and seeing the world as best I can. I. I don't travel as much as my consultant friends, but I but I, I try to make a dent. I try to keep up as best I can. So, <laughs> so we have another uh, complete the sentence. I think the coolest thing in technology today is blank. Uh, if you haven't guessed it right now, I'm really in love with the cloud, right? And I'm and, and it, it's again to me, it's looking at the cloud as a as a technological system rather than. Uh, just a simple uh, gadget or anything else, but that whole idea of, of having these powerful interconnected systems that are able to scale and be able to give all of this raw compute power, I mean, that's just a, we're living in interesting times, I think, in a large, large part because of that, because there's just lots and lots of opportunity for that. So one more complete this uh, sentence. I look forward to the day I can use technology to... That, I thought about this one, and you know, in every answer I came up with sounded either trite or too deep. So <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to get there somewhere in the middle. I think that I am a I am always a big fan of the human component of technology, right? And it, it, we need to find ways to begin to use technology to enhance humanity, right? Mm. It, and I think that the internet, you know, as we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, the elections and uh, Facebook and, and Twitter and, and you know, there's, we have found a lot of we're we're really in the the um, the the club stage of technology, right? That we found ways that you know we we're, we're all interconnected. Let's just beat each other up, right? And right. Um, We've got to get kind of into that Iron Age where the tools will get better. They'll still right. be more capable of doing damage, but they're also going to be more and more capable of solving problems. Um, and we've got a lot of things that are a problem. I live in a little town called Houston, Georgia, which is outside of Atlanta, uh, and I still have uh, what barely qualifies as broadband, right? And and I think that you know, as the internet becomes more and more pervasive. There's infrastructure problems that we've got to begin to address, and right. not just in the U.S. And then you start looking at, you start moving outside of the the, the country, and you start dealing with things like food and water and um, and, and, and 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 power and, and all of these other basic resources that we really have to have to begin to propel ourselves forward. Finding ways that we can turn technology and machine learning and all of these things into solving those problems. I mean, that's really kind of the next cool thing for me is is, cool. is if, I can, if I can begin to see ways that we can, you know, avoid problems like Flint, for example, and, and right. begin to solve problems like that. That's that's a very, very powerful real-world test of what the technology could be able to do. So 
Well, that's a good point. And one, one final uh, question. Do you listen to audiobooks? I am not as big a fan of audiobooks as I probably should be. And I, I heard you guys reference a couple of those and uh, – uh, uh, you know, I, I listened to a couple of your shows and, 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 and heard a couple other recommendations that I got to jot down, but uh, uh, I am not a super audiobooks fan. So, <laughs> Well, good news for you. If you're not already subscribed to Audible, Audible is a sponsor of ours, and one way folks can help support the show and enrich themselves is to go to thedatadrivenbook.com, and you'll get be redirected to uh, Audible, and you'll get one free Audible book. Um, and uh, we have a number of recommendations, but uh, you can't go wrong with the uh, Black Swan. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, if I, can, if I can put a pitch in for a book right now that I'm reading that I'm really sure. getting a lot out. Um, it, it's a book by Nicole Forsgren, uh, Gene Kim, and Jez Humble. It's called Accelerate. Um, and it's a, it's a book uh, I came across uh, uh, Nicole For- Forsgren's, and I hope I'm not making her name more, uh, you know, I heard her on another podcast. What she does is really, really interesting to me. That that she is, um, they do a, a state of DevOps report every year, and she has built a whole um, uh, structural equation model around the answers to that survey. So she does. She's she's not part of the SQL community that we know, right? Yeah. But she's definitely a, a, a data person. And what I what I really find fascinating about our work is that she's able to, to, to build a predictive model about how successful a company is going to be in their DevOps journey based on various factors. And wow. you know, it's really an interesting read if you're all at all interested in, in, in doing quality software faster hmm. to just pick, pick this book up and just kind of uh, thumb through and pick up some of these points. So uh, uh, Accelerate is the name of the book and it's uh, Forsgren, Kim, and Humble. So, awesome. Uh, cool. Good book. And where can folks find out more about what you're up to? Um, probably the best place to find me is uh, at codegumbo.com. I'm originally from Louisiana. Uh, uh, obviously, as a software person, I you know I, I like to throw heritage to that. So codegumbo.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at codegumbo, and, and you can reach me there. And, uh, uh, yeah, I love to chat about this stuff. And, I'm active, as Andy knows. I'm active in the in the Atlanta SQL Server community. I'm I'm active in the the SQL family. Um, I'm also getting very very much involved in these whole Azure Data Fest things, and uh, uh, I'd love to to have conversations with folks and, ch- and chat about it. So awesome! And with that, we'll let the nice British lady finish the show. Thanks for listening to Data Driven. Don't just listen, become a data driver by going to datadriven.tv to sign up to join the community, access to special events, tips and tricks, and more. Sign up today at datadriven.tv.